Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined for the third time in this series. Thank you for talking with us again, Dr. Richard Rice. Good morning. My pleasure. So we've been having a rollicking conversation talking about your intellectual biography. We started out talking about the openness of God, talked about the reign of God. We've talked about believing, behaving, belonging. And so for our third installment here, we're going to be exploring your book, Suffering and the Search for Meaning that came out in 2014. Before we jump into that, though, I just want to um, check in with you as we've been going through this process. Um, what have you uh, reflected on as you've thought about the um, prodigious output that you have uh done in terms of publishing and, uh, and, and how has reflecting back on this uh, affected you? Oh, well, thank you. It's a privilege to be in conversation with you again. And uh, through forum that has meant so much to me over the years, I think all of my books, and I'm not sure I'd call them prodigious, they're connected in one way or another with something that I've either learned in graduate school or faced uh, teaching. And um, I am probably best known uh, to the religious world in general as because of my relationship to open theism, and we've talked about that, The Openness of God, the first book I wrote. And then it created some challenges. <clears throat> and uh, for people outside the church in particular, um, I wrote the textbook, Reign of God, uh, just to show that the first sabbatical I was given after six or seven years of teaching would not be for naught. And <laughs> into a textbook, and it's been translated into a couple of different languages. The latest was Dutch, but I didn't, you know, that was just basically to give me a textbook that I could use in, in my classes which uh, turned out to be um, helpful to others. I wrote the, the book that we're talking about today kind of in an interesting way. Um, I, I read once, uh, the making of courses into books uh, has no end. And I think many, many academics have taken classes that they've taught and turned the material into books. And that's exactly what I did. But it has kind of an interesting history. I had an opportunity while teaching uh, an undergraduate uh, campus, La Sierra, which is now La Sierra University. Then it was Loma Linda University, Riverside. But I was teaching there. And then I had an opportunity to teach a contract class uh, on suffering and the problem of evil at Loma Linda. And I wondered now... I know the people there who are taking religion classes typically are preoccupied with demanding professional and graduate programs. And so I wondered whether they would be interested in looking at suffering from a, a heavy philosophical point of view. But I decided I would just weigh in and discuss the philosophical issues. And I was really surprised at the degree to which they took very seriously the challenges that suffering poses to religion and particularly to the idea of God. That's great. I would um, like to explore the, the concepts in your book a little bit further with you. And so when you're talking about contemporary responses to the problem of pain, of course, we're talking about theodicy. Uh, can you kind of talk us through some of the, the, say, problems with the, let's say, traditional ways of thinking about suffering and blame and cause and effect? Yes, they, the 
to use the word that is unavoidable in this area, <laughs> theodicy, which comes from a German writer who derived it from Greek. It really means to justify God in the face of the evil and suffering that we find in the world. So a theodicy is a thoughtful response. The word has expanded meaning, a thoughtful response to the problem that suffering poses. And the title of the book was one that the publisher picked, mm. Suffering and the Search for Meaning. And I think putting together suffering and meaning is a, a serendipitous way of sort of putting together the problem that suffering raises. Su serious suffering raises questions about the meaning of life. I define suffering in the book as life-changing loss. Mm. And people who go through a life-changing loss have to question whether or not their lives have meaning in the way that they might have had before. And that's the, that's the connection there. So there's a search for meaning, and the search for meaning leads to various responses on the part of people. And all of them appeal to some people. None of them is without questions. So that's... Mm. The, None perfectly answers it for everybody. So that is the, the challenge of suffering. And of course, teaching at a health sciences university, um, it's not hard to uh, remind people that their professional activities will inevitably put them in touch with people who are suffering. What's the, what's the problem with the sort of common phrase, well, everything happens for a reason. It isn't a problem for some people. And mm. that would be the uh, one of the important theodicies that we look at. It's remarkable to find people who are facing serious uh, challenges physically, emotionally in their lives, and to find that they respond by saying, this is God's plan for me. Um, I'm going through this because God knows it's best for me. So that's the first theodicy the book discusses, perfect plan theodicy. And in each of these theodicies, I appeal to a person who uses that theodicy as a way of responding. And one of the best known people, uh, known to many, many conservative Christians is Johnny Erickson Tata. Yeah. There was a girl who is a teenager, uh, fractured her neck diving into Chesapeake Bay and has had to spend year after year as a quadriplegic. And her way of responding is to describe what happened to her as God's plan for her life. God knew just what she needed, and this is, it fits. Now, I don't I can think of a lot of people that wouldn't find that comforting at all, but she does. I think it's an example of uh, a theodicy that others would find very challenging that somebody finds a source of comfort. Um, well, uh, that's a great example of, of perfect plan theodicy. Can you just kind of summarize some of the ideas that are, that are, sort of popular expressions of what you call, say, free will defense, and, and maybe we'll wrap in soul-making theodicy in there as well? Well, the free will defense takes the idea. It goes all the way back, well, to ancient times, but Augustine is well known as authorizing the free will defense. And that uh, is the idea that Suffering is not, in contrast to the perfect plan idea, something God wanted. But in order for God's purposes to be fulfilled for creation, God endowed certain creatures, particularly human beings, the, oper the, the freedom to say yes to God. So I think God wanted their loyalty to be a matter of choice. And to give them the opportunity to say yes, logically, it was necessary to give them the opportunity to say no. And tragically, not what God wanted took place. And uh, the creatures that God created, hoping they would remain loyal to him, and they would enjoy a, an intimate interaction with God, that would only be possible if they were free. They used their freedom to say no to God. 
And suffering is one of the long-range consequences of that terrible, tragic mistake. On the flip side of that, um, can you reflect on soul-making, theodicy, and, you know, the idea of maybe character development through suffering? Yes, well, that, <clears throat> it, it, it resembles... Uh, it resembles the perfect plan theodicy in a way, but it sort of grows in connection with the other. But it's basically saying God never gives up and God will pursue God's original objectives for creation and for his human children in spite of the fact that they have made life, made it difficult for God to do that. And so God will use even the negative experiences of life and turn them into occasions for positive development. Probably all of us have found that, that uh, getting into trouble or making a mistake has turned out to be the occasion of something positive. Mm. I, um, I, I was talking to a group of dental students about this topic, and one said, you know, uh, that reminds me, I was playing uh, a football game I think it was just a pickup football game with some friends and I injured my, I don't know, it was an arm or a leg. He may have broken one of those. And he's in the emergency room talking to the uh, physician who's talking to him. He was young and hadn't decided what to do. And they uh, took up dentistry as a possible uh, choice of life work. And that's where he first began to think about making dentistry a career. And uh, so here it was the, uh, the accident on an athletic field turned out to be the occasion of a life-changing uh, choice that he made. And this happens. So um, all of us can probably turn, uh, think of occasions that were in themselves painful, but turned out to be the occasion of something positive. I had my own experiences, uh, the worst, if, I, if you want me to illustrate Please. it my first quarter of my second quarter of graduate school i had the lowest uh experience academically i've ever had hmm. i wrote a paper on a topic that i didn't know anything about <laughs> a seminar and my ignorance was exposed somebody asked me about something in the paper i had written which was the basis of our conversation i couldn't find what she was asking about the teacher got up walked across the room picked up my paper, found it, and said, there, that's what she's talking to you about. <laughs> I realized uh, this teacher was going to be on my examining committee in a year or so, uh, would not have a very positive impression of me. And so he agreed at my request to meet with three of us and give us a kind of seminar on the issues that would be over the, the, the exam would be over. I became so interested in his philosophy that I made one of the figures that we talked about in that quarter to get ready for this test, the subject of my dissertation. So it turned out to be a positive experience and what made life miserable for the time uh, helped to promote my academic career. And, and this can happen. Yeah, I think... Uh... Um, so many of us have had that experience, which is a way of kind of keeping hope alive, even when it seems like right. the darkness is descending. That's right. Oh, that's nicely put. Um, the next one, Cosmic Conflict Theodicy, is probably very familiar to Adventists at a popular level. It's often expressed as what's going on in the world. There's a, a war between God and Satan, and uh, we're sort of caught in the middle, and we need to choose sides. How do you think of the Cosmic Conflict Theodicy? Well, I think you summed, I think you summed it up quite uh, succinctly. It's the idea that, that there are... There's a superhuman conflict between the powers of good and evil. And as Adventists typically view it, the issue uh, that's at stake here is the character of God. Does God really care about creation in a way that's loving and even self-denying? Or is God simply a creature, uh, not a creature, but is God simply a being of overwhelming power 
who could uh, accomplish anything that sheer power would do just by deciding to exercise it. And there's a sense in which, uh, as Adventists understand this conflict, the devil is accusing God of being a different kind of person than God is. Mm -hmm. And God is responding to the devil's charges by showing God's willingness to make sacrifices, to do whatever it takes to win the allegiance of the creatures over. And in a way, the principal uh, act in this whole drama of salvation is the coming of God's own son into this world to experience the consequences of sin and the rebellion and not to respond with overwhelming power or force in the same way, but to show that God's love will go to the ultimate extreme of sacrificing um, ultimately. So the ultimate sacrifice is the cross. Yeah. And that's the experience that uh, the, pro or the proponents of the cosmic conflict theory would, um, would appeal to. The cross is the definitive expression of divine love, self-sacrificing and a tremendous, uh, tremendous cost. You know, it strikes me that the uh, moral influence theory about salvation, one of the, we won't get into all of those soteriological um, explanations or theories, but uh, the way that you just described the conflict uh, theory is, you know, is, is actually quite compatible with the idea that what we see on the cross is, is a, is an expression of, um, of a, a moral path forward rather than just a, a substitution and a sort of um, sacrificial uh, death. I think it's, it's interesting to, um, to reflect on that. Uh, a couple of the proponents of, of the, um, the idea of the character of God being on, well, what should we say, uh, questionable, and mm -hmm. people responding to that associated with Loma Linda yeah. are very much, I think, promoters of versions of what might be called the moral influence theory. The idea that God is demanding a sacrifice or a payment, and that's the basis of God's willingness to forgive, somehow strikes those uh, as very unrepresentative of God. And uh, so instead of a substitutionary atonement, God, uh, Christ's death represents something else. There are challenges here again that you've raised sure. the issue of atonement. There are challenges with all theories of atonement as well. But uh, that's one that's viewed by a lot of Adventists as preferable to uh, any versions of the substitutionary theory. Well, this is getting fun. But one of the things when I uh, first read your book is that uh, I thought you might conclude with the open view, uh, the openness of God theodicy. Uh, obviously, you have been associated with the theory for decades, uh, but you don't. You don't offer it as the ultimate solution to these um, intractable questions about uh, goodness and evil in our world. Um, why not? Um, instead of uh... well, the <laughs> the course and the book were designed to describe different prospects, different possibilities, and different ways that people uh, have looked at the problem of suffering and found solutions. Mm -hmm. For me in graduate school, the uh, idea of an open reality. Mm -hmm. um, seem to make sense of the reality of human freedom. So if you think carefully about freedom, uh, one of the challenges of the traditional view of God is that uh, God sees the entire future in all its detail, and yet uh, human beings are free. So how can you know the future in all its detail if in fact 
a good deal of the future, or at least a significant portion of the future, is not yet determined. Very and important this, question. This conflict has been uh, the difficulty of somehow reconciling the notion of absolute foreknowledge with genuine freedom has been a problem uh, theologically and philosophically for many, many years. You can read it in other books um, as well. And um, so that's, um, that, that's a real challenge. And uh, it seemed to me that, that uh, process philosophers who affirm the, the openness of the future and the, the reality of choice and indeterminacy as part of what, it, it's a way of understanding the world in which we live, that that sort of philosophical position helped to make sense out of the idea of freedom. Hmm. Now, then the question is, well, doesn't that compromise God's power, God's decision-making and so on? Well, not if it's the kind of world that God wanted to create. Okay? If God wanted the values of freedom, then God ran the risk. And I would use that word, uh, Important uh, an important Adventist thinker such as Ellen White even uses the word risk to talk <laughs> about uh, God's taking a risk at times, particularly, she says, when God sent his son into the world at the risk of failure and eternal loss. The idea of risk means you don't you you're investing in something without knowing whether or not the outcome you hope for will take place. Mm -hmm. And so it seems that um, that there's a risk there. And understanding that was important to making sense out of the whole problem of evil. So understanding the um, the value of freedom and thinking of the open future as a risk that God took. And yet at the same time, God did everything to minimize the prospect that that risk would actually be become a reality. And I think when we think about the most rewarding relationships that we have as human beings, if we think of committing our lives to other people forever, or we bring children into the world wanting and hoping that they will become everything that they, they can be, um, we realize that there are limits to the extent of our control over things. And the great rewards tend to be those that bring certain amount of risks with them. We can't control down to the last T everything. A parent who is determined to be absolutely controlling in every single respect is not going to wind up with children who are well-adjusted or who are happy with the upbringing they've received. Mm -hmm. Oh. I'd extend the analogy to uh, church leaders uh, controlling the parameters of Adventism really tightly is counterproductive to the kind of framework that we're talking about that God has uh, given us in this world where we have freedom to really define um, the uh, path that we take. And um, as so many people use the term relationship, that's a sort of give and take, which is which is an, uh, a sort of popular expression of the opportunities that the open view of God gives us. That we can, you know, God is not outside demanding control, but in in the field with us. I think you write yeah. in the mud in the uh, openness of God yeah. back in the '80s, and the idea is that you know we're you know I think church leaders can really benefit from thinking about um, these issues of, of um, theodicy because it can maybe give them a, an empathy for what their, you know, what the parishioners and us laity are really, really in the struggle and um, trying to uh, find a representation of the divine um, in, in the way that the church works is, uh, is an important responsibility. Well, it is. I think since you've raised the issue of leadership, when we think of God as the ideal leader, um, there's some things that only God can do, and God takes care of those. 
just like a good parent, I mean, there's some things that only a parent is equipped to do as children are younger. And then the parent takes less and less control as they get older. But I think good leadership involves having a, a, a well-defined objective and then a route to achieve that objective. And then an ability to inspire people to join you in that pursuit. And that's where um, all three are important. Uh, you can have a very uh, st strong idea of where things ought to go, but if you lack the capacity to encourage people to join you in pursuing those objectives, you're, you're, just, you're just not going to reach them. So that is, um, that's the challenge there. And so, um, well, that was a, yeah, uh, I was just going to say that was a, a great summary. I'm going to jot that down and okay. hopefully maybe your next book will be on leadership. <laughs> Those three okay. principles seem to well, really, um, get to the heart of the matter. The other is, I think, um, an ability to make decisions when you realize it's crucial that something be decided now. Yeah. And that's that's crucial as well. Um, I remember um, um, I have a son-in-law who has uh, has had positions at a major university in the Midwest, and he talked about admiring one of the administrators that he's worked with because uh, he could make a distinction between well, we don't need to worry about that today. You know, that's not urgent. And then on the other hand, when he would say, OK, we got to do this today. This is absolutely crucial. And I think the ability to see uh, the difference between those two is uh, another aspect of leadership. And then to, to make a decision. I'm reminded of, um, well, uh, American general, a uh, union general in the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant, was described mm. as someone who, who could, could see the necessity of making a decision, even when there would be negative consequences of whichever option uh, were selected. And, you know, it was like, we got to do something. We can't just let things float. And that's another quality of leadership um, and a willingness to make a decision and move on. Yes. That applies not just to individual leaders, but to boards as well. Uh, there's too much paralysis of analysis these okay. days. <laughs> um, we've, I'll, uh, we'll move on from ranting and continue to talk about the ethereal here. Um, you talk about the finite um, God theodicy. What's that? Well, there are people who are persuaded that if God had the power to radically interrupt the course of events in ways that would minimize or even eliminate suffering, God would exercise that power. The fact that the world does not exist in a state that leads to that conclusion has led people to the position that the that there's only a certain amount of power that God has over the course of events. The, the best known figure to take this position when it comes from a religious background would be uh, Harold Kushner mm. and uh, in his book um, on suffering. He, um, he achieved a great deal of uh, tension years and years ago because he wrote this book about uh, a god and the experience of suffering and he he started out by he had a child who was a victim of progeria rapid aging and when he was finally diagnosed as very very early in life he was given the uh, prognosis that this child would look like a little old man very early on and he would not live that many years and sure enough, he died uh, shortly after his, I think, 13th or 14th birthday. And so he, Kushner said this, Kushner was the, the rabbi of a congregation of Jews in New England. And he said, this changed everything I had taught and everything I had believed as a religious person, believing in God, believing in God's power, 
And uh, I had to do, to sort of rethink my entire theology. And I came to the conclusion that there are some things we would like God to do that God just can't do. And so when bad things happen to good people, his book, mm-hmm. came out, uh, that was a position he took. There's only so much we can expect that God could do. And he, uh, he made a comment, if you look at some of his recorded uh, presentations, I think the book was turned down by a couple of presses and then eventually published, and it became a bestseller. Oh, yeah. All sorts of people. He said he'd wind up in a city he was unfamiliar with, and when a taxi driver found out who he was, he'd say, your book really helped me, something like that. So I think it illustrated it illustrated the, uh, the widespread concern that people have about the problem of suffering. And sooner or later, it comes to everybody. Now, the way I describe suffering is a life-changing loss, the realization that what's happened has been so influential in your life that you can't go back. Hmm. You've got to go on, and that's where this search for meaning takes place. Uh, If your life is to have meaning, you're going to have to find it in a way other than the the bases that you had for... uh, confidence that you had before hmm that's such a helpful way of framing it it's uh you know out of the tragedy there's a an opportunity there to reevaluate and and perhaps grow the next one that you talk about is um the idea of protest uh you the title of that one is like all these titles in the book are are great i like this one the rage against the dying of the light and in this one you uh, drawn two authors familiar to many listening um, favorites of mine Dostoevsky and Camus can you talk about that uh, idea well I think in a way uh, protest theodicy is a contradiction of terms if you will (laughs) a theodicy is an attempt to make sense out of the presence of suffering in God's world and protest is the denial that any of these attempts makes any sense or helps people in a personal way. That the the outrage that we feel in the presence of suffering, and um, tragically, uh, it's the response that many of us have to the suffering of children and innocence in the Ukraine that's going on right now, Mm -hmm. uh, to say this just doesn't make any sense. And the idea that this is part of some divine plan, that this is a way of achieving some uh, praiseworthy ulterior purpose is just totally unconvincing. And so there are those like Dostoevsky and Camus who say, don't try to explain this. It doesn't make any sense at all. And you've got figures in uh, both those books that say it, it doesn't make any sense. Don't try to make sense out of it. There is a, a, an outrage at displays of suffering, or what should I say, instances of suffering, completely preventable, imposed by people who had superior power and seemed to be insensitive to the pain that they were causing. And the idea that somehow that is a good thing, that whatever happens as a result uh, outweighs the negatives, just isn't isn't at all uh, persuasive to people. So you've got uh, the major figure, uh, the physician Ryu in The Plague by Camus saying, I'm not going to try to make sense out of this. I'll do what I can to help those who are suffering, but don't expect me to ever come to the position where I will admit that this was somehow a good thing or that whatever it led to uh, outweighed the suffering that was inflicted. So these are uh, well-known literary objections to the idea. And there are people who take a position, I think, on a practical level that just say, don't try to make sense out of what I've been through. Uh, I just, it's painful. The loss will always be there. 
and I'm not going to accept it. So those were this, the last of the six or seven theodicies. Mm -hmm. I did mention in the book that what's interesting about protest theodicy is that there's something there to protest. And that is to say, this should not be the case. Well, if you eliminate some ultimate source of meaning and purpose in the universe, then why are you so upset with this happening? You know, it should just be, well, that's, that's the way life. it is. Yeah. yeah, that's the way it is. Some people die tragically, other people live long and healthy and uh, fulfilling lives. It's just the, the way things are. But the, the notion of protest seems to presuppose a commitment to the idea that life should be meaningful and rewarding and people should have opportunities to thrive and develop. And so if they're deprived of those, there's something wrong with the universe and the way things are. There's gotta be an explanation that accounts for that being in the world. So there's a, it's a kind of, um, it's a position that in some ways is self-refuting. The outrage that it expresses presupposes the belief that things ought to be different. And they make sense to talk about ought to be uh, only if there's some possibility of that being the way things uh, are. It strikes me listening to you that uh, protest is an act of, of hope in a way that, I you, like that. Yes. You're, you're really thinking about, um, as you said, the way things ought to be and, and in some way, you know, you, you know, using your voice, your body, your existence to try in some way to, um, to make space for that uh, better future. Well, I think the, the title of the book that we've been, been talking about is, uh, it's not one that I came up with, but I'm impressed with the editorial <laughs> suffering and the search for meaning. There's the, the idea that in spite of horrible experiences, we will still search for meaning. It's possible to find meaning in life in spite of things that happen. Now, occasionally we'll undergo negative experiences and they turn out to be positive. We turn out to, uh, to grow as a result. Um, on the other hand, there are experiences that are simply uh, deprive us of meaning. We can't look back and say, yeah, that's a good thing. It's a good thing I had that really demanding teacher in, in uh, high school or I never would have made it through <laughs> physics in college or something like that. So I'm glad that that happened. Other things you would say, I, I'm not glad they happened, but in spite of that, there were some benefits that followed. I've always liked the subtitle of Harold Kushner's book, Grace Disguised. It's how the soul grows through loss. Hmm. And I think that preposition is significant. He doesn't say because of loss, as if to say the loss created the growth, nor does he say in spite of the loss, as if you can grow uh, by making a, an end run around the loss. The loss provides an occasion for growth, hmm. even though it is not itself the cause of growth. So I, I think the idea that we can still grow that God has not abandoned us, that there are still values and purposes that can be achieved in our lives, no matter what happens, is something that provides a basis for hope and confidence. You conclude your book with a final word, and the final paragraph begins, but even if nothing makes perfect sense of suffering and our attempts to fit it within a rational package, never fully succeed, we can still respond to suffering resourcefully. And that is the essential message of this book. What do you mean by this use of the word um, resourcefully? Well, I think we, we can find ways of not giving up, hmm. of finding degrees of meaning in life. Um, I know a brother sister who went through uh, the tragedy of a broken home 
And as life went on, I think they discovered that lessons learned from seeing what their parents went through and what they went through as kids may have had a positive contribution to the seriousness with which they themselves um, entered into family life and raised kids and so on. But it was interesting to hear them talk to each other and say, you know what, in spite of the fact that some good things follow, we can't conclude that it was a good thing that that happened. So some negatives are more than made up for by the positives that follow. Others, there's still a, a consequence of loss, but loss doesn't have the last word. And I, I think those are different ways. We can probably all think of, of things that were painful at the time, but turned out to be very beneficial to us in the long run. So we can say, I'm glad that happened. There are other things that may have happened to us. And we would say, I've never completely recovered from the pain of that, but I have grown in ways I wouldn't have grown otherwise, that that's possible. So I think there can be a net loss without uh, necessarily having the whole thing be a loss. Hmm. God is capable of working. I, I think for me, this is what um, Romans 8.28 means, okay? Uh, that's a text that's translated interestingly in three different ways. All things work together for good. In all things, God works. Well, it, it would be God makes all things work together for good. Or the third is, in all things, God works for good. Hmm. Now, the idea that all things work together would be things are all for the best. Whatever the outcome is, it can be for the best. My preferred translation would be the last one. In all things, God works for good. That doesn't mean that everything that happens is beneficial, net positive, but it means that as far as God is concerned, suffering never has the last word. There are always things that God can do in response to suffering that keep it from being a complete devastation of life's meaning for us. Hmm. So great hearing you talk about this. I feel like, um, you know, this is you writing in a sort of pastoral way, really helping <laughs> folks as they, you know, live life, um, uh, you know, actual life. Um, but you bring in some very helpful um, frameworks and concepts. So, you know, as a reader, I just want to thank you for your work on this in this uh, book. It, it strikes me that um, there are some um, questions that you still like to wrestle with, and I'd just like to know what what sort of um, ideas are you interested in exploring these days? Well, the project that I'm making minimal progress on, <laughs> I hope I'm not going backwards, would be the, the value of healing in a broken world and the possibility that's available to us to do that. I've been, uh, I've been struck by the fact that Seventh-day Adventists, in some ways, paradoxically looking forward to the soon return of Christ from our very beginning, Adventists, uh, are best known by the general public for our extensive educational system um, around the world and also for our extensive healthcare system. Uh, I've been among the, re the readings I've done lately are two authors who say the largest private healthcare system in the United States is operated by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And so it's, it's really remarkable that we have invested so much in seeking ways to improve life here on earth while we look forward to the soon return of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will utterly transform the world in which we live. Yeah. And all of the negative challenges that we face and the sources of loss and threats to life's meaning 
will be eliminated. And yet here we are doing everything we can to make this world a better place while we uh, look forward to the coming of our Lord just as soon as possible. So that's, uh, that's something interesting about why, why we would do that. Now, where I live in the institution I've been associated with for a number of years, the um, Loma Linda University Health recently opened the second tallest building in the San Bernardino County, the largest county in the world, and that was the uh, the Tresh Medical Center. Yeah, it's huge. It just towers over. Huge towers over towers over the old one. What was <laughs> new when I was starting out in pastoral ministry years and years ago, and uh, the sort of the cloverleaf uh, towers. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it's a it's a commitment, a tremendous commitment on the part of Adventist Health to um, earthquake survivable buildings. And uh, it's just a stone's throw away from the sanitarium building where Loma Linda started back in the early part of the uh, 20th century. I think it was 1905, it started. And we've been involved in serious healthcare, uh, training physicians and nurses and physical therapists, and we could go on and on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, ever since. And the idea there is that uh, we are committed to the idea that God is working in the world to relieve suffering and to enhance human life in spite of all the interruptions and the, the tragic consequences that sin imposes. So God has not given up on the world and God's purposes can still be fulfilled. And that is our role uh, now as a church to participate in that and contribute to it. So there's a kind of a paradox there, but it's a very interesting one. Is that how you often get your motivation um, to to explore a topic? You kind of noticed a, a, you notice a possible paradox or contradiction that puzzles you and you kind of work that out? Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but there are challenges. I, I think the greatest challenge, of course, in the idea of God is the challenge of evil. So yeah. that is the problem. Um, there are those who would say that is the only objection to the idea of God that makes any sense. Uh, I think it's Alvin Plantinga who says that when you see undeserved suffering, it, it raises questions about the goodness and the power of God that simply cannot be ignored. And so to, to be in a healthcare institution where you are addressing suffering on an institutional basis, you can't avoid that. And um, I found that helping um, health professionals, talking to medical students about the, the questions that this raises on the part of their patients with the idea that that may not be the first question you as a therapist, the diagnostician and a therapist are concerned with uh, when you are dealing with a with a patient, but that will be on the patient's mind. And uh, I was teaching a class once to a variety of health professionals and a dent dental hygienist who hadn't said anything for weeks <laughs> raised the question. I, I had a patient who uh, asked me, why is there was something going on in his life? painful. And he said, why is this happening to me? Well, you wouldn't expect the dental hygienist to be addressing a problem of extensive suffering. And yet, because she was showing care for him on a personal, physical level, the sort of assumption is if you are in a position where you are giving me care, I will assume that you are a caring person. And since this care is taking place on a kind of a one-to-one -one basis, that I can assume that you will care enough to address my concerns about how this is affecting my life and what meaning there is. And um, talking about it from simply someone who observes, <laughs> someone who's a patient, someone who's seen a patient, I will never forget my father in his advancing years, a diabetic, um, he was seeing a gerontologist, 
And the gerontologists, uh, as they do, a gerontologist will look at a diabetic's feet to see because there are oftentimes there are problems there. And when, when the examination was over, um, lo and behold, this highly trained physician, the specialist, was kneeling down and putting my dad's shoes and socks on. Hmm. I was I was startled because I'd never seen anybody else looking after podiat, you know, uh, mm -hmm. doing it, and yet somehow that vision of his willingness to, I would say, condescend and do something of utterly menial uh, nature, which I, I thought he would invite us to do it or call in an assistant. Sense that willing that that picture uh is sort of reminiscent and it just comes to mind as we're talking right now of jesus washing his disciples feet mm. and i have heard that there is nothing in other religions that corresponds to the creator of all condescending to take care of the feet mm. of those who were subordinate to him mm -hmm. and so this picture is is just remarkable yeah strikes me that you've really summarized the idea of whole person care, that you're not just caring for the physical, but the mental, the spiritual, the social as well. And the interesting thing uh, is that it doesn't take that much time or effort. A book came out recently, and I've talked about it. I don't know if I mentioned it here. It's called Compassionomics. Hmm. Compassionomics? Compassionomics, it's obviously uh, put together, yeah. compassion and economics. And it's, it's a study of the actual effects, the identifiable, uh, statistically supportable effects of caregivers of a, of a medical nature expressing a personal concern for their patients. And it's just a matter of seconds because the concern now, particularly in this country, is I, I only have so much time with a patient. I don't have time to open up the door to all sort of all sorts of you know life concerns. And they've discovered that taking as little time as 40 seconds within a 15-minute consultation can make over the long haul a discernible difference in the way in which what the uh, what the therapist or the physician is prescribing, the effect that that has on the patient's uh, recovery. Hmm. So it, it just shows, I think, how much uh, little changes can have a wonderful effect on people. I can tell another story, but our time may be gone here. <laughs> well, I love to hear your story, so please do. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, a very good friend of ours lost her mother in the woman's 90s. The woman was a very uh, um, remarkable woman, enjoyed being with young people, and worked as a hostess years and years in uh, a college cafeteria, helping people find a, a place to sit and introducing them to perhaps their new dining partners. And she and her daughter were extremely close. And then uh, her mother, uh, the, the mother passed away and it was very painful. But what happened was the, um, the daughter, in spite of the closeness to her mother, seemed to show remarkable uh, composure during the viewing in the, uh, the, the home. And then the, um, the formal service, uh, the funeral service and memorial service at church, mm -hmm. and at the graveside mm -hmm. where there was a final farewell. And um, since she was a close friend, we went to all three. And at the graveside, she made this comment. She said, I, uh, I've had people tell me they're surprised at how at my composure during these various services, remembering mother, particularly since they recall how close she and I were. And so I must tell you what happened. 
I was in the hospital and it had become apparent that mother would not survive her illness that took her there. And I was standing in the hallway, uh, leaning against the wall and just weeping because I realized um, my time with mother was almost over. And one of the housekeepers in the hospital stopped by and put her hand on my shoulder and just stood there with me for several minutes. And all she said was, it's hard, isn't it? Hmm. And my friend said the comfort that that expression of sympathy and understanding gave me is what has carried me through all of these memorial services. And I think it shows how much a gesture of care, a word of comfort, a word of encouragement can be to people. And we should uh, look for opportunities to do that, uh, I think, day by day, realizing that the impact of our words and our gestures, and perhaps a touch when it's appropriate, can have a lasting effect on people. Reassuring them to go back to the book, your suffering is not unnoticed and unshared. Okay. We can care. In the last chapter of this book that you we started talking about, um, I discussed the differences between your suffering, their suffering, and my suffering. Mm. And as a philosopher, when I hear about terrible things happening, as they are in the world now, I begin to ask the question, how could this happen in God's world? And run through the possible explanations. Um, everything's different when I'm the one who's had an accident or an injury or discovered I have a serious illness, hmm. my suffering. What about if it's your suffering? What if you're in a, a position where you're dealing with suffering people all the time? You can't avoid confronting the reality of suffering, but you must avoid somehow being consumed by it. So there's got to be a way between your response to their suffering as an abstract philosophical issue and uh, your own sense of the life-changing loss you've experienced, a way to deal with those that bring their suffering to you as a professional that can be helpful to them without totally draining you of any possibility of helping others in the same day. And so that is another aspect of suffering that caregivers should well uh, spend time reflecting on. Hmm. Well, thank you for working through those uh, challenging issues and, and, and uh, framing it up for us in ways that help us remember the you know, the I that's involved in the thou and how we in some, in some way are, um, are, can be uh, helpers in um, oh. the healing of others. Well, thanks for the conversation. And Before, thanks for your leadership of Adventist Forum. Oh, well, thank you. Before we wrap up, I need to do an advertisement here, which is that um, conversations with uh, Dr. Rice don't conclude here. In fact, his book, Believing, Behaving, Belonging is being featured in the um, Loma Linda University Church Sabbath Seminars Sabbath School. And that is a Zoom class as well as an in-person class. And so folks can go to the Spectrum website and listen to Dr. Rice talk about Believing, Behaving, Belonging um, coming up soon. And then, um, uh, various, uh, Adventist scholars will be, uh, talking about the, uh, issues that he, that he raises in the book. And so there's a, uh, this is a series of six, uh, Sabbaths. So that will be on the Spectrum website. If anyone would like to read along, they can go to, um, Amazon and get Believing, Behaving, Belonging and participate in what should be a really uh, rich discussion of the issues of uh, community and what it means to be part of one.
I want to thank you so much, Dr. Rice, for talking with me. We've spent hours together, and it's a treat, something I'll remember for the rest of my life. And I really appreciate you working so hard to help us think theologically, um, communally, and um, empathetically as we try in some way to understand what it means to be human. Thank you. My privilege. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear.